kids' church. Sorry about that. The book of Mark is where we'll be today, chapter number 10. Last week, we completed a six-week series on highlighting the home, and now uh, for these coming weeks, we're going to turn our attention to the Passion Week of Christ, and uh, beginning with the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, we know that as Palm Sunday, and as we already mentioned earlier today, Palm Sunday According to the religious calendar is going to be next Sunday. It's the Sunday prior to Easter But uh, today we're we're gonna we're gonna take a look not just at Palm Sunday But at what leads up to Palm Sunday kind of in the week Prior to and my purpose is not to reveal something new to you uh, But simply to remind us that it was a very short time from the cries of Hosanna to the cries of crucify him it happened very quickly and I think sometimes it's important for all of us to to be reminded uh, that simply because we bring praise to the Lord doesn't mean our hearts are always understanding or right in those praises how could things change so drastically and so quickly if you have crowds of people offering praise was it false praise and that's what I kind of want to look at today. And, and, and just so you understand, we're going to spend a lot of time in the Scripture. And then we're going to have a brief time application. And I don't like doing that necessarily, but I just feel like it, it's so interesting to be able to, to understand the, the preparation and the purpose for Palm Sunday. And I don't, I don't want to rush through it because I really do think it'll affect the way that you think this week and in the coming weeks as we look forward to the glorious resurrection of Jesus. We're going to start by looking at uh, why there was a Palm Sunday as we look at the preparation uh, for Palm Sunday. So uh, most all of you know that a crowd gathers at, at Palm Sunday to herald Jesus into Jerusalem. So the question is, where did this crowd come from? And why were they saying what they were saying? Because again, remember, this is just days before this same Jesus will be in Jerusalem, actually outside the skirts of Jerusalem, hanging on a cross. Where did those people come from? And why were they yelling what they were yelling? And so we're going to jump around a bit in the Gospels, all to lead us up to this triumphant entrance. We're going to stay in Mark 10 and 11, but I am going to show you more Scripture than just Mark 10 and 11, because the Gospels, there's not one Gospel that gives a complete overview. It's, it's all of the Gospels together that help us see and understand this. So we're going, to, we're going to move around to some of the Gospels, but, but I'll ask you to stay with me in Mark chapters 10 and 11. And so the, the whole idea is, we're going to start with John chapter 11. John chapter 11, and as soon as I say that, if you're a student of the Bible, you might immediately know something significant happened in John chapter 11. Jesus goes to the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus because Lazarus has died. And in John chapter 11, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, which causes mixed reactions. Some people believe in Jesus, other people run to the religious leaders and the religious leaders, because Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, begin to plot to kill Jesus. Verses 53 and 54, and the very first passage I want to show you is, is from the New Living Translation. And I'm only using this one because it actually uses the word Jerusalem. 
And so what this tells us is, is after the Jewish leaders heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, they begin to plot Jesus's death. And because Jesus finds this out, he leaves the city of Jerusalem, which is where he's going to enter when he comes back riding on that donkey. But let me read you from the ESV, uh, these, these two verses. It says, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews. He's left Jerusalem, but went, there, but, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And so there he stayed with the disciples. Jesus leaves Jerusalem because he knows there's this plot to kill him. But think with me. Why did Jesus come to this earth? He already knew, right? He knew he had come to die. But now there's a plot to kill him. And when he finds about, out about the plot to kill him, he doesn't allow them just to take his life. He escapes from Jerusalem. Why? Because when Jesus dies, is very significant. He is going to be the true Passover lamb and the true Passover lamb of Israel needed to be killed, sacrificed on the day of atonement, Passover. So Jesus couldn't just allow himself to be taken whenever they wanted to take him. Jesus was going to offer himself up on a specific day. And so he knows that day is not come and so he leaves jerusalem with his disciples and he will soon head back to jerusalem knowing when i enter this time i will die i will offer myself i know who is going to take my life i know when they are going to take my life and i know why they are going to take my life so when jesus heads back he knows Everything that the Father has asked me to do is about to take place. This is what makes the entrance into Jerusalem such a big deal. He's not walking into a trap. He's aware and he's purposeful and he's determined to accomplish the will of God at any cost. And man, what a challenge when you think of that. Jesus was not taken by surprise at anything that took place. He purposely went to Jerusalem to die. But on his way to Jerusalem, many very relevant things took place that we may not understand or connect to Jesus on his way to death. In Mark chapter 10, which is where you are, would you look at verse number 17? Mark chapter 10 and verse number 17. I think this kind of really kicks off Jesus's journey to Jerusalem. I'm going to, again, put behind me the, 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 very, the New Living Translation, which tells us clearly Jesus was starting on his way to Jerusalem. We know that. Here's what we'll read in Mark 10, 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, this journey to Jerusalem, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I'm just, all I'm going to read, I just want to pause. Did you ever think that the fact that the rich young ruler, as one, uh, as, as one gospel will, will teach us, he's a rich young ruler, he runs up to Jesus. Jesus is on his way to die. This man comes to him and falls at his feet and says, good master, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus doesn't point him to what he's about to do. He could have said, follow me and I'll show you. 
But instead, he looks at this man because he knows this man's heart and he wants to reveal what this man is thinking and believing. A man who says, I've done, I've done good from the time I've been a young child. And Jesus said very simply, then go sell all that you have, give it to the poor. Or go sell all that you have, take, take that money, give it to the poor, and then come back and follow me. This happens while Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's, it's where Jesus makes the statement, it's easier for a rich man, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. He turns, and this, this entire conversation with this man runs through verse number 31. And, and as it comes to a close in verse number 31, he starts walking again, and his disciples follow. Would you skip down to verse number 32 with me in Mark chapter 10, verse number 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, what was to happen to him? Verse 33, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. We see, I mean, this is, this is as clear as it comes. Jesus knows what is about to take. He knows when he enters Jerusalem on this donkey to the, cry, to the cries of Hosanna. He knows it's, it's death. He tells his disciples this. And everything Jesus does, we have to realize, this is very purposeful. See, for most of his ministry, Jesus has been careful not to reveal that he has been the Messiah. Remember Jesus healing people and then say, don't tell anybody. Jesus doing a miracle and, and changing or transforming someone say, don't tell anyone who, that, who did this. Because he was guarding, he was veiling who he was as the Messiah until the right time. Because if he came out and said, I am the Messiah, they would be crowning him instead of killing him. And Jesus knew, I didn't come to receive a crown, I came to receive a cross. So he's very purposeful. Now, as he heads to Jerusalem, he is throwing the blinders off of people's eyes and hearts. And he is, he will time and time and time again reveal himself as the Messiah. Why now? Because Jesus knows it is the revelation of himself as the Messiah that will be the reason he will be hung on a cross. So every time Jesus says, this is who I am, is another nail, per se, pounding him into what is awaiting him. Because it is, it is the chief priests who are going to be so incensed at Jesus claiming to be who he really was that would be the cause of him being put on that cross and he knows that so he is going to be purposeful in everything he says and in everything that he does and so he turns to his disciples and say here's what's about to take place when we go to jerusalem i know who's going to kill me chief priests scribes they're going to condemn me they're going to hand me over to the gentile romans who will mock me and spit on me they will beat me and then they will 
kill me, but after three days, I will rise. He says this so clearly to his disciples, but they don't get it. Because in verse number 35, which, which follows Jesus bringing this revelation, what follows in verse 35 is that two of Jesus' closest disciples say, hey, um, Jesus, we have a favor to ask of you. We won't read it, but what they ask is, can we sit beside you in the kingdom? Think, think of what just took place. This would be like you going to the doctor and finding out that you have terminal cancer. You know your death is imminent. And you come back to tell your best friend, hey, I'm going to die. And they say, huh, hey, do you want to go shopping? There's like a really big sale at the mall right now. You missed the the relevance. But as we go through this today, I think it'll be very clear why they missed the relevance because Jesus was now proclaiming himself as the Messiah in such clear ways. There was no way they could connect his death other than his own words. Look at verse number 46. If you would, Mark chapter 10, verse... 46. It says, and they came, remember they're on their way to Jerusalem. They came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So in these closing verses of Mark 10, Jesus walks through Jericho, and as chapter 11 opens, he rides into Jerusalem. But as Jesus goes into Jericho, two important things happen. One, the healing of this blind man. Actually, Matthew tells us it's two blind men. But, but in all three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that this occurs, the same storyline comes. These beggars or these blind men call Son of David. What is that? Oh, that is a messianic term. That means we recognize you, Jesus of Nazareth, as the Messiah, for the Messiah would come from the root of David. And the people heard that, and they're like, shh, don't say that. Son of David, no, that's, that's messianic language, but you notice who doesn't tell them to be quiet is Jesus. This time, he receives it. In fact, he doesn't just receive it. The people who were telling these two blind beggars, two two blind men to be quiet, Jesus walks in their midst and heals the blind men. Now, people are saying, oh, they've called him the Messiah. He is working miracles. Could it be the Messiah? And then something else takes place in Jericho that we don't read in the book of Mark. It actually takes place in the Gospel of Luke that you and I may not know, may not realize this took place as Jesus was going to Jerusalem to ride into Palm Sunday to his death. As Jesus walks through Jericho in Luke chapter 19, there is a crowd that has gathered around Jesus. There are crowds in the streets lining to see Jesus, including these blind men. But there's also this really short dude 
who climbs a tree to be able to see Jesus over these massive crowds that have started to gather around him. And his name is Zacchaeus. And Jesus calls Zacchaeus down, goes to his house, eats with him, transforms his life, and word spreads quickly in this little town of Jericho. Zacchaeus is different because of that guy who healed the blind man who were calling him the son of David. Could it be? And the crowds begin to form even greater around Jesus. Then Jesus heads from Jericho to the town of Bethany. You'll see as we read in Mark 11, verse 1, he's, he's passing through Bethany. And Mark doesn't tell us anything that happens in Bethany, but John does. John tells us that after Jesus leaves Jericho on his way to Jerusalem, he goes to Bethany. Remember Bethany? We've already mentioned that. It's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. He's already been in Bethany to heal Lazarus. Now he's returning to Bethany, and two very important things happen just days before this Palm Sunday. He walks into the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and Mary breaks a bottle of very expensive ointment over Jesus. It's John chapter 12, verse 3. Breaks a very expensive bottle of ointment over Jesus and begins to anoint his feet with her hair. That's an act of worship. And Jesus receives it. He's sitting in the home of the man he raised from the dead just the previous chapter. Now he's receiving worship and Judas, the Bible tells us Judas in John chapter 12 verses 4 and 5, he gets really upset about this and says, what a waste. And Jesus rebukes him. Oh, uh-oh. Do, do you see? Jesus receives worship. Judas doesn't like it. Jesus rebukes Judas You have to think of the timing and how things are taking shape. But that's not the only significant thing that takes place while they're in Bethany. Because the Passover is coming, the, the very end of John chapter 11, let me put the, I'm not going to read it, but put the words behind you just so you understand. Because of the Passover, Jews were starting to come to Jerusalem from all over. And I want you to look at the, the it's the, actually verse 56 behind me. It says, they were looking for Jesus. And saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? So again, you gotta, you gotta think. The Jews are gathering for the Passover and they have heard about Jesus and they're asking like, where is he? Do you think he's gonna come? And then, I don't know how, but at some point, word gets to these Jews who are looking for Jesus that he is in Bethany at the home of the guy he raised from the dead. That means if we go to that place, we'll see the one who claims to be the Messiah, and we're going to see someone he raised from the dead. Let's go. And in John chapter 12, verse 9, here's what we read. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Verse 10. So... The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Man, so you've got, you got to feel the excitement here. Jesus is healing 
miraculous signs. He's receiving words of Messiah. He's receiving worship. People are thronging to him. He has changed lives. And now these Jews who've only heard of him show up at the house of John, show up at the house of, of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And man, they are excited to see Jesus and people are believing in him. The excitement's growing. But the religious leaders are really upset. They're like, we're already talking about killing Jesus. We need to kill Lazarus too. Verse 12 of John, it, it tells us it's the next day. The large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. This is it. This is Palm Sunday. This is what we're going to celebrate next Sunday. Jesus rides in this triumphant manner into Jerusalem. And so let's, let's look at Mark 11, the purpose. We've seen the preparation, and now, now we, we're going to read as, as, as he rides into Jerusalem. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and, and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and we'll send him back, and, send, and they will send it back here immediately. So, so, so here, here. We, we know Jesus is coming from Bethany, right? He's, he's at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He sends two of his disciples to get a, a colt, which is a young donkey. Tim Keller even called it a baby donkey. And most of you have probably heard this passage read and explained, well, Jesus chose this because, well, well, kings, when they enter a city, if they're riding a horse, they're coming for war. But kings, as they enter a city, if they're riding a donkey, it means peace. You may have also heard that Jesus came to ride on a donkey because he was meek and humble. And both of those are accurate, but actually the Bible tells us why. Jesus chooses to ride a young donkey. It's in Matthew 21. It says this, this took place, meaning this, this, is, this is Jesus coming to Jerusalem on a young donkey. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So why did Jesus, Jesus ride into Jerusalem on a donkey? Because he, at this moment, is consciously and publicly declaring himself, I am the one who has come to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament prophets of the long-awaited Messiah. Here I am. And that is forcing people to choose sides. Either he is or he isn't. But everything he does... It's purposeful. He even asks for a colt on which no one had ridden. Why would it matter if someone rode on it or not? Because in these days, in these ancient days, no one rode on the horse of the king except the king. He wasn't borrowing someone else's. It would be his beast of burden as a king riding into his city, fulfilling prophetic fulfillment. But Jesus also in what he says, he's displaying his omniscience as God because he tells them, this is what you will find. This is where you will find it. This is who will have it. This is what you need to say. And this is how they will respond. How would he know that if he was not God? Again, 
He is just peeling back the layers, showing more and more clearly, I am Messiah. Look at Mark chapter 11, verse 4. It says, And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street. And they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said. And they let them go. Do you ever find it strange that Jesus sent his disciples to steal a donkey? Have you ever heard of the term eminent domain? Eminent domain means that the authorities of a land can take what they deem necessary. Jamie and I experienced eminent domain. Uh, the second house we ever bought, we signed papers for it, and two days later, our realtor called us and said, this has never happened to me before, and I'm really sorry to tell you this, but the town of St. John has just taken your property and your house back by eminent domain. Meaning we had, uh, thankfully, we got out of the contract but basically it said the town thought that was valuable property to them, so they were taking it. They knocked the house down that we had planned to buy, and they made it a parking lot for their town vehicles. They can do that by eminent domain because they are the authority. And in these days, kings, kings had the right to take any beast of burden that they deemed necessary for, their, for themselves. Jesus was simply being king. He chooses the donkey for himself. He tells them what's going to happen. In verse number seven, they bring it back. Would you look with me in verse number seven? And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others left spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, we're familiar with the palm branches because it's called Palm Sunday, but they were throwing their clothes for him. Why? Once again, it's tied to kingship. In 2 Kings 9, as the, as the king walks down the steps of the palace, the people are throwing their clothes in front of where the king walks. For this reason, they are saying, you can walk on me, you can step on me. I am showing my submission to you. This is what the people were doing by throwing their clothes in front of Jesus. We, sir, we, we, we submit to your authority. They were yelling out the word Hosanna, which means to us, which means, Lord, save us now. They were quoting Messianic Psalms, Psalm 118, that was connected to the Messiah. They were using words, and we'll see it in just a moment. They were using words that connected Jesus to the kingdom of David. All, mess, all Messiah, all Messianic. And imagine what the chief priests what these religious rulers were thinking while all this was taking place actually we don't have to imagine it the bible tells us what they were thinking luke 19 says and some of the pharisees in the crowd this is as jesus walks some of the pharisees in the crowd said to him teacher rebuke your disciples and he answered i tell you if they were silent the rocks the stones would cry out you've got to understand what's happening the the world that had been changed from Adam's sin. Nature that was now placed under a curse. Recognized. Messiah is coming. 
coming to fulfill. And Jesus said, if the people who are gathered don't cry out to me, the very stones on this road will cry out because they know what is taking place. But in John chapter 12, the Pharisees are saying, they're seeing what's taking place, and they're saying to one another, oh man, you see, you're gaining nothing. Like, we're not getting anywhere here. Look, the world has gone after him. Everyone is lining the streets of this of, the, uh, of Jesus entering Jerusalem and they are cheering Messiah, Messiah, Messiah Hosanna, Hosanna you are the one coming in the name of the Lord, this is it and they really, really believed it the chief priests are given no choice, Jesus has performed miracles, he's fulfilled prophecies the people are offering him praise as Messiah. He's receiving praise. He believes he's the Messiah. They believe he's the Messiah. What do we do? No choice. We got to kill this man. Jesus, from the moment he turns to Jerusalem, he is putting choices in front of people, the same choice we have today. You either king me or you kill me. I'm not playing second place. I'll be your king if you let me, but you crown me. Otherwise, you'll be your own king. We see this growing response of the people, and then we're like, well, how did everything go wrong so quickly then? Like, everyone believed in him, but just days later, he's going to be crucified? And I think, I think the answer is veiled. It's not clear. It's veiled in what is being said about Jesus as he enters Jerusalem by the crowd. Look at verse 9. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, which means Lord save us. Hosanna, Lord save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 118. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna. In the highest. Hosanna. Save us now. But the question that has to be answered, and I really think the crux of all of what's taking place here comes down to this question. What are you asking to be saved from? Messiah! Save us from what? We actually know what they were expecting him to do. After Jesus is crucified, laid in a tomb, and resurrected, he comes back to some of his disciples and he has a conversation with them. They don't know it's him, but he talks to them about himself. And, and here's what it says in, I'm sorry, here's what it says in Luke 24. Let me read it for you. It says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And listen to this statement. This is, this is what they say. We had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Did you, did you catch that statement? 
We had hoped the Messiah had come to redeem Israel. And that changes everything about Palm Sunday because now we realize the triumphant entrance and the roaring crowd was never about Jesus. The shouts of Hosanna were, were genuine shouts, but they were not rejoicing in what God was doing because they did not understand what God was doing. Their shouts and their cries were not about God. They weren't about the Son of God. They weren't about the kingdom of God. It was about them. They were shouting for Jesus as the Messiah because they thought he was coming to restore their kingdom. But when they see him on Friday being beaten at the hands of Romans, they're like, we, you were supposed to save us from Rome. When he, when he sits under the judgment of, of Herod, they're thinking you were supposed to come judge Herod and save us from him. And the shouts on Sunday were turned to silence on Friday because they did not understand that Jesus did come to save them but to save them from an even greater enemy than Rome and establish an even greater kingdom than Israel. He had come to save them from sin and to establish the kingdom of God. To be honest, I don't think a lot of people in this crowd on Sunday were a part of the group that was yelling crucify him. I don't think that's really the way it was because that, that, that trial of Jesus took place at night when everybody would have been sleeping. It was, it was connived. It, it, was, it, was, it was all of betrayal. It was of silence. And we're going to put Jesus on trial in the middle of the night. And people who, who cried out Hosanna woke up to seeing Jesus now condemned, being beaten and carried away to be crucified. But here's the thing. They were shouting on Sunday, but when they saw the one we thought was the Messiah being treated the way he was, they thought he'll never be our Savior. We'll pick up more of the narrative. I, I just want to close briefly with a few applications. First, praise Jesus for who he is and what he has done. Not who we want him to be and what we want him to do. See, the praises of Palm Sunday were not about who Jesus was. They had gathered because of what they had seen him do, but their praises were contingent on who they wanted Jesus to be and what they wanted Jesus to do. And when he apparently failed their expectations, their shouts turned to silence. And the same things happen today. You know, churches should be filled to the brim on Sunday with, with people who are looking to gather with other believers to worship the very God who brought redemption. But you know why so many believers will stay away from church on Sunday is because at some point in their life, God has failed to meet their expectations. And so you know what? He is a my God. Or sometimes we do gather and we'll lift our hands in praise and our knee, we'll bend our knees in prayer, but without hearts that are truly surrendered to whatever God, whatever God wants to do in my life right now. We love to put the goodness of God on trial. We don't mind throwing our clothes down for him to step on. We will submit to him. But good gracious, 
we do a really good job sometimes of making the kingdom of God about, about the kingdom of me. We've even turned churches into our own little kingdoms. This place is all about Jesus, but it's so easy to make it about me. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like the way we sing. I, I remember reading and my heart just jumped. And Aaron, I think you're the first person I ever saw share. But someone walked up to Francis Chan once after church and said, I really didn't like the songs we sang today in church. And he looked at him and said, that's okay. We weren't singing to you. You ever walk out of here disappointed in the song selection? It's not about you. We're singing to him. We love making it about me. Praise Jesus for who he is, what he has done, not, not about who we want him to be and what we want him to do. Praise Jesus, secondly, for giving us what we need, not what we want. Actually, this isn't how I wanted to state, make this statement, but I couldn't, couldn't find the right words to, to make sure it came across. So let me just try to say it. I really mean praise Jesus for providing all things for his glory. Because even this, praise Jesus for giving us what we need, we are still the subject of this. It's not about us. Praise him for him giving us whatever will be returned as glory to him. I was studying this week and I shared with my wife and I, one of the classes I'm taking through for my master's right now was talking about the, the misinterpretation of J Jeremiah 29, 11, a beautiful verse. I know the plans I have for you, God says. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. And the man that was sharing said, so often we use this verse in, in graduation gifts and in other things because we individualize this verse as if God was saying, I know the plans I have for you as an individual. But that's not at all what this was saying. This you is plural. He was speaking to the children of Israel. I know the plans I have for my people. And they are really good plans. Because if we individualize that, what, was, what do we say about the people who, after God makes this declaration, what, what do we say about those who, who, their lives ended in death? Or torture? Or enslavement? But God was never saying, I'm going to make your individual life so wonderful. He's saying, I am going to work in such a way that I will care for my people so that my people one day when they come before me and my presence, they will want to glorify me for all of eternity because they will then understand it's not about me. It's all about him. Your prayers this week, are they about what you want? Or about God's? glory what did the jews want they wanted someone they wanted jesus to be the messiah to bring god's judgment to the world they just wanted someone to bring god's judgment to the world but what would most clearly bring god's glory and what they 
ultimately truly needed was not someone to bring God's judgment to the world, but someone to bear God's judgment for the world. And that is what Jesus did. Glory to God. Glory to God. Finally, praise Jesus for the finished work of Calvary. Hanging from the cross, Jesus uttered the words, it is finished. I heard someone give an illustration recently about a master sculptor who was putting the finishing touches on his statue and a friend walked over and said, can I borrow your hammer? Jokingly, can I borrow your hammer? Let me just... Let me just make it look a little better. And the sculptor looked at him and said, no, 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 my friend, it is finished. And the man that asked for the hammer jokingly was a believer. But the sculptor was not. And he said, ha the words it is finished, do you know why you, you said it is finished? Because if you would hand me that hammer, I would ruin the perfection, Right? That is what God was declaring through Jesus when he said the work of salvation, it is finished. I don't need your help. It's done. So many of us, we we get this thought that we can help God with our salvation. Let's be a good person so we can earn eternal life. No, no, my friend, it's finished. A saving faith will always result in a life of good works. But a life of good works never results in saving faith. We believe in the work of Jesus. And then we become partners together, working with Jesus. Because it's finished. We'll pick up more on the, on the Passion Week next week. But I want to close the service today with one simple thing. Let's praise Jesus, not because we want something from him, not because we expect something from him, but because we recognize who he is, Messiah. What he has done, he's brought redemption so that we have access to the Father. We are part of the family of God. Praise the Lord. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus. Man, my heart was so full this week studying through this. I see a confidence in you that was so bold. You knew exactly what you were doing. You knew why you were doing it. And you knew every moment of these passages that we studied today. You were obeying the Father to the glory of God. And you have made a way for us to know the Father for the glory of God. And you have purposed us to partner together with you in our lives for the glory of God. Everything you do and everything you call us to do is for the glory of God. Lord, may we as your your believers, as, as followers of Jesus, may our hearts, may we, lay, may, may we raise those hosannas, but may we raise them not because of the expectations we have, but because of the realization we have of what you have already done for us. 
May we not make your goodness conditional, but may we understand you have proven, you have been faithful, you have loved us, and you have shown us that so clearly in the person of Jesus. And Lord, as our hearts as, as believers look forward to, the, to, this, to this week of, of passion and, and be able to, to celebrate all that you have done, may, may everything we see in Jesus result in our hearts crying out, Hosanna, Lord, you have saved us. One day we will gather in your name and we will kneel before you we will see your love. We will experience who you are. We will be absolutely overwhelmed with your glory. And we will only have one response. And that is of worship and praise. For the glory of God. And may we start to live that way now. A life, a church, a family, a marriage. For the glory of of God. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? We'll close with the song.